welcome to the conversation. I am John Iderola. If you were just watching the live show, you might have seen me joining Dan Evans and Anna Kasperi in the second hour there. Normally, you can find me on the Friday power panel of the Young Turks. And of course, I host the damage report every day on the Young Turks network. But today on the conversation, I'm very excited to talk to two really interesting individuals. On one hand, the remaking of our Congress to be more progressive, more representative of where the country is actually going. And a little bit later on the show, if you stick around, Sports columnist Bradford Davis is going to be joining us to break down a really interesting racism scandal involving the owner of the Houston Astros and some related issues having to do with the current state of sports journalism and some scandals that have been going on right now in that area. But before we get to that, I want to start with, again, the fight for a better Congress. And we have a candidate who's joining us now, running for Oregon's third district, Albert Lee. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, John, good to see you again. Yeah, it's glad, I'm glad to talk to you and give you a chance to you know make your case, introduce yourself to hopefully a new group of people online. There's a lot I want to talk to you about, but since there's probably a lot of new people here, introduce yourself. How did you get involved in this? So this is a big run. You're going against an incumbent Democrat in a contested primary. What's going on with that? Great, thanks, John. My name is Albert Lee. I'm running to represent the people of the third district of Oregon to the United States Congress. I'm running because I believe that democracy requires choice, something we simply haven't had here in over a generation. I'm running because we face a series of crises here in this district, across the country and around the world that require bold action now, not just inspirational and aspirational words. I'm running because I believe in the basic tenets of the Democratic Party when it comes to the diversity, equity and inclusion. It's beyond time that we uplift some new voices. Lastly, I'm running because I think it is time that we end this rule by an oligarchy of elite multimillionaire politicians and replace them with citizen representatives who know the struggle, who won't take corporate contributions and who will truly represent and fight for the people. Okay, so you covered a lot of territory there and I wanna return to various parts of that. But before we get into various components of your platform, talk to me about the last few years for your district. So we have this incumbent, Earl Blumenauer, what has he been doing? How has he been using this powerful position that he's gotten? Great, you know, Earl's been in, he's been our representative for almost a quarter of a century, almost 24 years now. and. Quite frankly, during that time, he's kind of kept the seat warm, really hasn't done a whole lot to help this district. We've faced a series of crises, including a homelessness crisis that has just exploded, the lack of affordable housing and living wages, and our climate emergency. And during that time, basically, he's taken that time to establish some sort of a progressive brand, but with no real meat behind it, hasn't really actually done anything to accomplish anything. So I've got a lot of people that say, hey, I love Earl. You know, why are you going up against them? And then when I turn the question back around to folks and I say, well, what has he done for us? Crickets. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about meat. Let's let's get into the meat now. You mentioned the climate emergency. It's it's been an interesting week in that area. Although you know, substantively, the United States has not been abiding by. The Paris Climate Accords. We did find out this week that the Trump administration has contacted the UN and said we're going to formally remove ourselves from that. Now, thankfully, we have had more local and state level efforts to do something about climate change, which means that as a congressperson, you would have the ability to to do something to help us fight this in that area. What would you like to do? Yeah, number one, the Green New Deal. We need to have a Green New Deal. We need to have a just transition to make sure that we don't leave folks behind. 
you know, folks that are working in the fossil fuel industry, we need to make sure that they have a livelihood that they can make and that we don't leave anybody behind on those things. You know, you were talking about the states stepping up because the federal government isn't. We have a West Coast block right here with Washington, Oregon, and, and California really leading the, leading the path. And we need to continue to do that. We need to take a look and address the issues. We have a system right now, an economic system that focuses on overconsumption. Overproduction and built-in obsolescence that is simply just not sustainable. We only have one planet, and we need to figure it out and take care of it. We've got seven to eleven years to do so. Yeah. Now, if you make it into Congress, one of the biggest legislative fights, assuming we have a Democrat who wins the White House, is going to be over the future of health care. And the talk about Medicare for all has dominated a lot of this primary. Different yes. forms of it, of course. You've got people pushing for Medicare for all. There's Medicare Choice, there's Medicare for all who want it, Medicare Extra Crispy. There's a million different <laughs> forms of it. Um, what form of, of of an expansion or you know maintenance of the healthcare status quo are you pushing for? Single payer universal Medicare for all. That is the only way we're going to solve this. Uh, all those other options just simply don't work. For those folks that talk about having a public option, they don't understand how how insurance works. You take and try to pool the risk of the entire population and then spread that hurt, spread that pain. With a public option, what you're effectively doing is you're allowing the corporations, the, the, the for-profit health insurance companies to cherry pick all of the healthy people. And then you leave all of the people that really are hurting into that public option. That public option eventually collapses. And then we either resort to going something like going back to something like before the Affordable Care Act, where some people just simply don't get insurance. Yeah. Or we go to a point where private health insurance increases the cost for those folks and lowers the quality of care and lowers the coverage. So we've talked a little bit about how you're differentiating ourselves from the current incumbent. You're not the only person who is vying in this primary for that position though. You also have Charles Rand Barnett. Talk to me about the relationship between you and Charles Rand Barnett. What are some of the important differences that people need to know about? Uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about him. Um, I know just looking at his website, he he says that he is basically Earl Light, uh, that he wants to kind of follow the things that Earl wants to do. Uh, and I think that there was some mention about uh, uh, doing something with Mars. I, I really don't, I can't really speak Sorry, intelligently. Was that to Mars? I, I, yeah, I think so. Uh, something hmm. about sending robots to Mars or something. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I, I really haven't been focusing on that. I've been focusing on the future of this district and of our, of our country. You know, it's not about Earl; it's about our future. Um, and when I look at it, I just, I just say, hey, we need to have somebody that knows the struggle, that knows the experiences that people are facing here. You know, people are sick and tired of having uh, the, the same issues happening here. The, the, the concerns that we have are real; uh, they are critical, and we need to address them. We haven't had anything in the way of addressing the homelessness crisis or the lack of affordable housing and living wages. And for me, I'm looking and I say, well, how many multimillionaire career politicians really understand and know what it means to live on minimum wage? Yeah, I do. You know, how many multimillionaire career elite politicians know what it means to pay a mortgage-sized school loan? I do. Yeah. So uh, we need folks that understand the struggles that we're going through and look for workable solutions that are going to take care of our entire district and our country.
You know, uh, I'm sorry, this might seem like a weird aside, but I was just reminded of uh, on Halloween, the, the conservative pundit Tommy Lauren, um, she dressed up like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and had a tweet uh, mocking AOC, including mocking the fact that she had been a bartender. And that struck me as very weird, that you would think that attacking a person, a politician, as having come from a working class background, that you would think that that would hurt them in some way. It seems to me as if people would be demanding more people who had come from positions like them, who knew what the experience of average working class Americans was like, less corporate lawyers exclusively. <clears throat> when you're communicating with voters, the fact that you, as you point out, that you've been on minimum wage, that you've dealt with student loan debt, I'm imagining that that's probably pretty helpful, right? Absolutely, it resonates with folks. You know, people relate to me and I relate to them. You know, one of the stories that I like to talk about is the minimum wage and how it has been suppressed over the last 30 and 40 years. In 1990, I worked for $3.80 in St. Louis, in North County, St. Louis, next door to Ferguson at a fast food restaurant. I think I actually got paid $3.12 an hour, a student wage. But if you put that into a real money calculator and try to see what the, what that is worth today, at the most optimal, it's worth $13.10, which is more than the minimum wage here in Portland. Even at its most conservative estimate, it is at $7.10, which is below the federal minimum wage. In other words, the minimum wage has remained suppressed for over 30 years, quite frankly, for over 40 years, while the cost of everything else has gone up. People are struggling, and when we talk about the suppression of the minimum wage, that suppresses all wages. Yeah. So people from the lower class to the working class to the middle class are all struggling, and they're all feeling the pinch. And we need to do something to help them. You know, you let's say you you win the primary, you get through, you win the general election, you enter Congress. We don't necessarily know exactly what the political environment is going to be like then. I know that in the Democratic primary in the presidential race, for instance, Joe Biden appears to think that if Donald Trump is defeated, that many Republicans in Congress are going to sort of come to their senses and start to once again work in a bipartisan way with Democrats. And there are others that believe that there's gonna be a massive struggle, even if Trump is pushed out of the White House to pass progressive legislation, um, what, what are you sort of anticipating when you get in there? What sort of fight, what sort of uh, opportunities for bipartisan behavior do you think you'll find? Look, I'm all for having bipartisan cooperation, but it does not mean uh, you know, leaving things on the table. It means fighting for what you truly believe in. And that's one of the things that I uh, quite frankly have issue with, with uh, Democrats generally is it seems like they negotiate themselves out of things before they even get to the table to fight against Republicans. Uh, we need to do everything we can to support the working class. We need to do everything we can to support unions. We need to do everything we can to fix this climate emergency. And that doesn't mean compromising on those issues. We need to fight and fight hard because we are running out of time. Um, and one final question, I noticed that a brand new Congress has endorsed you. Have you been in talks with any of the other national like large progressive organizations like that? Yes, we're working with a lot of them. But just a quick plug for brand new Congress, we're gonna be out in DC next week and weekend for the brand new Congress summit. And we're gonna meet with about 29 other endorsed candidates from all over the country. So I'm looking forward to being there and uplifting each other and, and working together because we need to add to the squad. We need to build up a progressive bench that's going to help shift us and move us into the right direction. And where can our viewers find out more about you and your candidacy? Absolutely, you can find out more information at Albert Lee 2020. 
Com, also on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. Uh, Albert Lee, uh, candidate for Oregon's third district in the primary. Uh, great getting a chance to check in with you uh, one more time. Absolutely, thank you. Have a great night. You too. Take care. Uh, we're gonna take a short break. We come back, we're gonna be speaking with Bradford Davis, a sports columnist after this. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. So if you are familiar with me and my work, if you've been watching for a while, you probably know that there's basically no one in this building right now who knows less about sports than I do. I don't know the inside baseball, the inside basketball, or pretty much anything else. And yet, during my prep for this interview, a fascinating story of racism in the ownership of the Houston Astros, implications involving the Department of Defense, and also the future of online journalism that has implications that go far beyond sports. And so I'm hoping to learn a lot, hopefully you will learn a lot as well, as we're joined by our next guest, sports columnist for the New York Daily News, Bradford Davis. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, very glad to have you here. Uh, and like I said, um, very interesting story you've written up here about uh, about the the ownership of the Houston Astros and some of the lawsuits that they're facing. So uh, for our audience, um, catch, catch them up to speed a little bit on what's been going on. Well, to be clear, had faced and and, and ended up settling uh, some time ago. But the uh, owner of the Houston Astros, a man named Jim Crane, uh, before you know he made his he made his billions rather. Uh, with a logistics company based in Houston, where he owns now the Houston Astros. And during uh, his time running that company, there were significantly significant lawsuits, uh, or rather, you know, accusations against him of uh, racism, um, or rather, the running of the company, racism, uh, uh, gender discrimination. Uh, it all sort, you know, kind of anything that is bad about running a company existed with uh, Jim Crane's previous previous ownership. It's very reminiscent of the whole Donald Sterling scenario, where yes. uh, you know Sterling was uh, banned from the league because they caught him, you know, touch, touching the one third rail that exists within, uh, uh, I guess, American discourse about racism, which is saying a racial slur. Yeah. But before that, he had uh, he had made his fortune off of. Uh, his uh, housing business, but you know, and uh, but but it also discriminated uh, relentlessly against Mexican Americans uh, in Southern California. So uh, you know, it, it, it was one of those. It, it was a scandal that that never actually took off. And the same thing happened, you know, in my opinion, with the Houston Astros. Jim Crane had uh, done, or rather, had run a company in a in a very scandalous light. Had had paid out hundreds of hundreds of settlements to um, you know to employees at his company, and yet. Uh, you know, didn't really suffer any consequences. You know, I'm really glad that you pointed out that um, that that he has been able to so far dodge actually being recorded saying something racist. And it's weird that I mean, even in the case of like something over in politics with Donald Trump, many people for years have been like, they're gonna find the tape of him. And it's like, do you do you really need to hear a person say something when you can take a look at their hiring practices, their pay practices, and all of that? It is very weird that we focus so much. On what feels like concrete evidence, when there's so much evidence out there that paints a pretty clear picture. Yeah, I mean, saying saying mean words is one thing, um, but a history of employment discrimination tangibly impacts lives. Um, that that is, uh, you know, in my opinion, the, the true scandal, uh, and it's a shame that that the you know that he 
um, wasn't held more accountable by Major League Baseball when he's pursued a sale, uh, rather pursued a purchase of the Houston Astros sometime after after those uh, settlements came out. Um, he, uh, you know, the sale did go through, and, and the Astros have been very successful under his regime. But uh, I wanted to p- uh, bring some attention to his past after uh, the Astros had um, one of their top executives had, uh, her, uh, I guess, harassed really a journalist who was a advocate for uh, domestic violence causes it within baseball. Yeah. Um, because the Astros had employed a uh, a pitcher who was. Uh, I believe credibly accused of domestic violence, so much so that Major League Baseball suspended that pitcher uh, for some time last year. And uh, and so you know, they, you see, you kind of see the same through line of um, not handling uh, serious offenses within the organization. Now, finally, this this, this uh, executive was terminated um, after a week of constant scrutiny. Uh, about his actions, but uh, but the Astros had denied it at first. They had tried to smear that journalist's testimony. They it did everything it could to uh, to try and evade the situation. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a playbook that is sadly all too familiar familiar with. Uh, let's call crane or crane run organizations, and I hope that uh, you know that that there's more attention brought to that. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know this, I, I learned something really interesting from your article that that logistics company had been sued by the DOJ four times for allegations of war profiteering. Which, when I got to that, I was like, I thought I was reading about sports. I did not expect this. That they're apparently overcharging. I was. Sorry, continue. I was shocked. No, no, it's fine. I, I, I was, I was shocked. Like, oh, it's not, it's not just racism or gender discrimination. They were, they. Every every kind of like bad thing you can imagine had followed um, Crane Logistics is is um, or rather Eagle um, Logistics the um, the company he had run uh, and again like I said it, it's you know while the uh, dep- you know the Department of Justice had has not yet uh, sued the Houston Astros for being good at baseball or anything <laughs> like that um, you know it, it it's a uh, it, again it's a, the word I keep coming back to is through line. Uh, it's it's a it's a pattern that I think you know I want discussed. You know, so um, as I said in the intro, I, I don't I don't actively follow any sports now, although I have in the past. Uh, so just like as an outsider viewing it, it seems like in multiple sports, the owners of sports teams don't necessarily tend to be the best people, and uh, racism seems to be a thing that that crops up pretty commonly. And I'm curious. Sometimes it seems. To hurt them, sometimes they seem to skate by, and it's not much of an issue. Um, as you've been following a, a number of different stories, what what do you think is the the defining factor that 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 says that there will be consequences or not for the sorts of things that you've identified in this case with the Houston Astros? Saying the N word, really? Yeah, <laughs> um, or say, or saying something you know that is obscene that would you know the, the kind of thing that would get me bleeped. You know, on, on a show like this, um, that that seems to be the only thing that really um, affects things. Mark Shot, for example, who was the owner of the of the Reds and you know Reds for many years, um, was um, you know she, she, you know she, she was actually given serious consequences for uh, making you know um, very racially. I hate the I hate the phrase of racially charged mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, statements about you know about uh, her black you know black players at the time. So. That's the kind, only kind of thing that really moves the needle. Sadly, in in uh, throughout any of the three professional sports, I mean, the Washington football team <laughs> uh, yeah. famously has a, has a name that is considered a slur by made by by 
many First Nations people. So that is um, uh, unfortunately the, the only thing that really is a true third rail, um, but a whole lot of uh, casual employment yeah. um, discrimination accusations, like like what happened with the Astros, or not, not with the Astros, but rather with with Jim Crane's previous um, business. Uh, get swept under radar, or you know, swept under the rug, and never really uh, uh, given full consequences that lead to you know results. So let's turn to another topic now, um, because uh, although look, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't like a daily viewer, reader of uh, Deadspin, but I'm familiar with it, and I've been following at least to some extent the development with it. Um, uh, there was this attempt to sort of uh, get them to stop talking about things outside of hard sports information, uh, the mass layoffs and everything. Um, as a sports journalist yourself, uh, what have you made of this uh, this set of developments with Deadspin? Well, it certainly uh, drives up my own anxieties of working in a very insecure industry. Um, uh, but I, I truly admire uh, you know, what Deadspin was. Um, they. Uh, you know, they told the truth fearlessly. They they have brought many extremely important stories to light. Some some very silly stories as well, mm-hmm. um, but 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 plenty of, of serious ones. I, you know, one that comes to mind is the um, culture of sexual assault. You know, at, at Baylor University, that you know was uh, Deadspin did a whole lot of the legwork and reporting there uh, to bring you know to to uh, to bring that to uh, you know the front of uh, I guess the public. Uh, um, Public mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, it's it's uh, very frustrating that a, that a, a website, a um, a company that was independently successful, that had found a, a an audience, a readership that worked for them, um, was um, first tar- first uh, litigated to death. Um, that that you know, in a way that that led to their um, financial troubles being uh, being forced into bankruptcy and then sold to. Uh, a number of owners that did not rightly steward what they had this very valuable asset they had uh finally leading to the uh to uh what what truly kills De- Deadsman, which was an edict from their uh their current owner to stick to sports so yeah. that led to a you know that led to a lot of their employees leaving um the you know leaving the company and uh and you know and and but and by doing so, maintaining their integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, again, nonetheless, even as Deadspin is sort of a a zombie of sorts at this point, none of the none of the staffers that were previously part of the editorial staffers are are you know are with the company anymore. Um, I really admire and appreciate um, their that they took it. They took a stance that they decided not to take a paycheck to that so that they can, um, I guess. You know, rest their head at night knowing that they yeah. that they practice real journalism to the end. I agree. It's a it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, none of those people were pulling in millions of dollars, um, but I respect what they did. Um, so, one final question, just because you mentioned the anxiety it gives you, is it possible that the 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 mass resigning and the fact that it seems like the majority of the public is siding with the writers in this, is it possible that that might send a signal to other potential executives or moves? To sort of like more tamp down on journalism at other outlets, that this could actually be counterproductive for them. Shoot, I, I certainly hope so. Um, I should also say that, like you know, I, I have my own writing has benefited dramatically from Deadspin. Even now, um, you know, I have multiple coworkers who uh, were our Deadspin alum. So, and that's at the you know New York Daily News, which is not a uh, a new media mm-hmm. <laughs> institution by any means. Uh, and yet, but yet, I think you know, in, in a lot of ways, though, uh, 
no, no publication is perfect. We, we sincerely try to, to, to uh, I think, speak truth to power in, you know, in our sports coverage. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, um, I, I, I hope that, uh, that it gives that it emboldens other writers and editors and editorial staffers to fearlessly speak, you know, to tell the truth, to be accountable to the readers. Um, and, uh, and that it kind of leaves a few people shook about, you know, what they're getting into when they decide to buy a media company. Yeah. Um, so, that's, <laughs> so that hopefully it meets out the, you know, the private equity types and the, you know, and the people who just want to turn what we do into a content farm and, and leads to, to owners who actually believe in the, the cause. I know there are probably not too many of them, but for, if you, but for those out there, like I, I hope that they're, that, that, uh, that, that, th- that those folks are the ones that end up uh, placing the highest bid going yeah. forward. Uh, I share that same hope. Uh, Bradford Davis of the New York Daily News, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And for everyone watching at home, uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this uh, episode of the conversation. Obviously, you know we've got more planned uh, for this week. Uh, eventually, Jenk will be returning uh, as well. If that's uh, something that you're um, inexplicably a fan of, uh, totally just joking. He's not here. He can't say anything. But anyway, thank you for for watching. Uh, if you'd like to see more of my work, you can of course watch the Damage Report every day. You can follow me on Twitter at John Iderola. Uh, we've got a post game uh, that's going to be going to be coming up in just a little bit. So stick around. Enjoy.